God, we praise you. Hey, Mark, would you like to give the sermon right after uh, that beautiful uh, singing? It's like, but, but thank you for raising the level of expectations. Let's pray. God, our Father, give us the confidence this morning in the power of your word. Grant us clarity and understanding, proclaiming and living out the truths that we find there so that we may possess and express a deeper love for you and for one another. Finally, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, our strength and our redeemer. Amen? So if you're with us a few weeks ago, uh, and I I will say true confessions, uh, Kelly asked me before the service two weeks ago, hey, can you do something for us on the 27th? Uh, It's when we're going to be recognizing educators. And I said, don't, don't you want to see how well I do on uh, the 22nd before you ask me? So I appreciate the confidence very much, Kelly. But a couple of weeks ago, you know, uh, sort of my approach to a, a, a text is to look at the text, the words on the page, and then the context, what are the circumstances surrounding the words on the page, and then the subtext. Is there a, a deeper, you know, uh, implied meaning. So that's that's what we'll we'll do today. So let's consider the text again uh, that Kelly read for us just a little earlier. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom Of heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The word of the God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right, so the physical context for the scripture this morning is Caesarea Philippi. It's only about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And during Jesus' day, the culture of this place was dominated particularly by Roman paganism. So it's here, in this context, that Jesus decides to share with his disciples his identity and mission as Son of Man. Now, the literary context is also interesting because it represents the climax, or the great reveal, in Matthew's story of Jesus' messianic revelation. So the intersection of these two pieces of context, the location for the revelation, as well as the revelation itself, are interesting. So in preparing for this sermon, um, I I wanted to sort of look at this idea of the Son of Man, and I found that there are sort of three different meanings at the time of Jesus. One could be just to describe someone, a Son of Man. Uh, The second was apparently uh, the prophet Ezekiel used this term to refer to himself Uh, 90 times, but most commonly people would associate this with uh, being the Messiah, the anointed one of God, and certainly that's Matthew's uh, approach. So, 
Two interesting observations in mind. Where Jesus and the disciples are and who the Son of Man was understood to be. It's in this context that we consider two questions. Number one, who do people say the Son of Man is? The disciples give Jesus four answers. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So we'll talk about those answers a little bit later. But I want to make sure we don't miss the question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? So after the disciples offer their observations on the first question, Jesus asks them a second, more personal question. Who do you say that I am? Did you catch that? It's personal because Jesus now wants to know what the disciples personally think about who Jesus the person is. Pretty clever, right? Jesus was interested in who they thought he was, not the word on the street, not what the world has to say, and not the mysterious figure of the Son of Man. To absolutely no one's surprise, right, before the question is likely even out of Jesus' mouth, Peter blurts out the response, right? So, so imagine this. You know, there's always that, if you're a teacher or if you've been in a classroom, right, there's always that one kid in the class, right, who, when the teacher asks a question, man, the hand goes up immediately, right? And 90, so this is 30 years of educational experience, 95% of the time, everybody in the class is cringing. Because they know, ah, it's probably not. And, and so what, what's going to happen is that kid's going to give an answer and the teacher's going to say, well, Mark, that's such a good answer, but not, not exactly what I was looking for, right? And that's what, that's what Peter is, right? That's why we love Peter, because he's that guy. We're that, we're that person, right? But in this instance, you know, he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And to absolutely everyone's surprise, Jesus commends Peter and promises that Peter will be the rock on whom Jesus builds the church. Peter. So there, there are lots and lots and lots of sermons about Jesus' response to Peter. Um, and pastors and theologians have spent a lot of time on this. I am not a pastor or a theologian, so I want to look at these two questions. Essential questions, we might even call them. So, first point is the world's essential questions are not the Lord's essential questions. So as a part of our worship service today, we have recognized and prayed for teachers and schools and students, and I'm humbled to be a part of that activity. Over my career, I've always felt that the best teachers are really good at asking questions. I'm sure this was influenced by a movement in education when I was a young teacher called Understanding by Design. And that movement placed questions at the very heart of the teaching and learning experience. In fact, some of these questions were so important, they were called essential questions. And here are the characteristics of essential questions. They're they're not like common questions. So the first characteristic is that they are transferable to other topics and areas. Secondly, they require serious thinking rather than merely retrieval of content knowledge. Third, they're open-ended, focused on big ideas. Fourth, they avoid predicting simple right or wrong answers. And finally, a good essential question raises other questions. So 
Here are some examples of essential questions. For a history unit, a great essential question at the beginning of the unit is, is the Civil War still going on today? So think about that. If that's what you're driving at, what you want your kids to understand, they're going to have to learn about what are the causes, what was the circumstances surrounding that event. So understand, essential questions don't discount knowledge. They build upon that. So is the Civil War still going on today? How does where we live affect how we live in geography? So I was in Memphis the other day visiting Camille, my daughter, who's in college. Laurel and I went up to drop her off for her sophomore year. And um, a couple of people came to us and said, we see there's a bad tropical depression in the Gulf of Mexico. Are you, are you guys going to have to evacuate for that? And we said, well, actually, we would love it if that tropical depression hit Houston in a mild form because we're in a drought, right? How does where you live affect how you live? For a math unit, when and why should we estimate? So my, my wife, Laurel, is a CPA. One of the great contributions to our marriage is she taught me how to estimate a tip in restaurant. Now, of course, they, they suggest the, the 45% tip before you get the bill, right? <laughs> so we lived in Louisiana where uh, the, the tax was, was around 8%. She just said, well, Mark, when you get the receipt, just double the tax, and that gets you, you know, 15, 16, 17%. Estimating, right? Estimating. Finally, for a civics unit, when is the restriction of freedom a good thing? We have to understand what is the basis of our freedom in the country, right? So essential questions. Now, take it in the context of a school setting or even a dinner party at your pastor's house. We might agree that these are the characteristics of the world's essential questions. They're provocative. They're interesting. They're important. Grappling with them during a lively discussion will sharpen our minds and deepen our understanding. And if we're willing to let them, the world's essential questions even make us a little smarter and a little wiser. I have nothing against these essential questions. In fact, I use them as an educator. Uh, The world's essential questions are concerned with my knowledge, our skill, our understanding, our minds, our intellects, our judgment. But these are very different from the two questions that Jesus asks the disciples this morning. These questions are interested in our salvation and in our souls. So, the world's essential questions are not the Lord's essential questions. Number two, the answers that the world provides, not always the the answers that the Lord is seeking. So remember that first question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? So if we're rephrasing Jesus' first question, as I said earlier, we we might say that he is asking the disciples to give him the word on the street about the Son of Man. The word on the street. The gossip in the community. What the world has to say about the Son of Man. If you work in schools, it's what's, what's being said in the carpool line, right? The word on the street. The disciples' answers to this question are interesting for the context that we find ourselves in. First, answers John the Baptist. So John was Jesus' cousin, right? He was a little eccentric, uh, but he drew large crowds into the wilderness where he baptized people and urged them to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The people who went to John were hoping he was more than a prophet. 
They were hoping John was the Messiah. As it turns out, John was the Messiah's forerunner. He prepared the way for the Messiah, but John wasn't the Messiah, not the Son of Man. Second answer, Elijah. Well, Elijah was the famous prophet, right, during the, the, the reign of the wicked king Ahab. I still remember that from uh, when I was in the first grade. God performed many miracles through Elijah, and even, even though some suspected that Elijah might return as the Son of Man, Elijah, not the Messiah, not the Son of Man. Third answer was Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet whose warning against the kings of Judah uh, were a source of agitation with the authorities, and in return, Jeremiah was beaten and imprisoned and eventually exiled. Even though some thought that his prophecies about the Messiah might point to him being the Son of Man, Jeremiah was not the Messiah, not the Son of Man. And then, of course, the last, uh, the prophets, one of the prophets, not the Messiah. So for me this morning, this first question may really be less about Jesus' identity and his mission and more about how reliable the word on the street is for those of us who might be tempted to seek it out and listen to it. From the disciples' answers above, doesn't seem like the word on the street in Jesus' day was all that reliable. So what about the word on the street today? Can we count on the word on the street to instruct us about the Son of Man? Let's take a look. So Jesus in America is a national study that was released in March of 2022 as the result of a partnership between the Episcopal Church and this group called Ipsos, which is an international market research and consulting firm. The results of the survey disclose that while the majority of Americans polled believed Jesus was an important spiritual figure, it also showed, are you listening, that Christians, Christians are not necessarily practicing what Jesus taught. Consider that for a moment. Christians, that's us, are not necessarily practicing. That's a direct quote from the executive summary. Not necessarily practicing what Jesus taught. So, let's do a little uh, activity this morning. And I'm going to admit from the outset that I'm going to be intentionally a little bit bit provocative this morning. Um, Let's imagine that Jesus is here with us today. But instead of asking his disciples what people think about the Son of Man, he has commissioned this survey. And here's what Jesus would learn, among other things, from the survey. So I hope you can see this. But slide number one is that he would learn that the people who need to know him the most, non-religious people, believe his followers are dividing the country. Now, among followers of other religions, to be sure, but that's what Jesus is going to find out. Answer number one to Jesus' question is, followers of Jesus, your followers divide the country. That's the word on the street. Second, Jesus would learn that the people who need to know him the most don't really see much of Jesus in his followers at all. So, I love this. If you can see this, Basically, these charts say that only Christians see Christians as Christ-like. We report that we're very kind and giving and compassionate and loving and respectful, but the non-religious say we're hypocritical, we're judgmental, we're self-righteous. So the second answer that the disciples, this is us, right? We're the disciples would say, 
Only Christians see Christians as Christ-like. So slice a little differently, it looks like this slide. Only 25% of people think that Jesus' followers act like followers of Jesus. That's the word on the street. That's the word on the street. So finally, and this, uh, I guess, this is supposed to make us feel better, at least in the report that I read. It was certainly contextualized in that way. Jesus would learn, and this takes us directly back to Jesus' question to the disciples, right? Jesus would learn that nearly, nearly all of his followers say Jesus is an important figure in their life. Nearly all. Nearly all answer the question of who do you say, or who, does, who do men say the Son of Man is, nearly all would say an important figure in my life. Forget about the Messiah. I think the number is 88% of all Christians would say that he's an important figure in their life. Nearly all. So I'll take a deep breath. The word on the street. So now this next slide that I'm about to put up, don't put up just yet. This is just something I came across during my preparation for this morning. It, it may only be interesting to me. Um, but we can, when we consider this scripture and Jesus' inquiry about the world in it, I thought I might share this picture with you and make a quick observation. So before we go to this slide, well, if you Google the Son of Man, this is what you get. If you Google the Son of Man, so we can imagine that maybe Jesus' question today would be, hey, first question, hey, disciples, if I were to Google the Son of Man, what would I get back? This is what you get back. And, and listen, I'm a, I'm a humanities guy. So what is this? This is a 1964 painting called The Son of Man by a Belgian surrealist painter named René Magritte. And this is what Magritte says about this work, which is commonly believed to be his most famous and well-known work. He has intentionally called this the son of man. This is what he said about it. At least it hides the face partly well, so you have the apparent face, the apple, hiding the visible but hidden face of the person. It's something that happens constantly. Everything we see hides another thing. We always want to see what is hidden by what we actually see. There is an interest in that which is hidden and which the visible does not show us. This interest can take the form of a quite intense feeling, a sort of conflict, one might say, between the visible that is hidden and the visible that is present. So how about a recap? Jesus asked his disciples today, that's us. We're the people in the survey. We're the receivers of the question. What is the word on the street about the Son of Man? What's the word on the street? And here are the answers. Number one, well, the word on the street about your followers is they're dividing the country. Number two, only Christians see Christians as Christ-like. Number three, nearly all of your followers say you are an important figure in their lives and the Son of Man is hidden from us. And we find that interesting. The answers the world provides are not the answers that the Lord seeks. So, number three, who do we say Jesus is? 
This is the essential question. So today's scripture has been acknowledged as pivotal and climactic in Matthew's narrative of Jesus' ministry. The stories leading up to this point repeatedly press the issues of faith and discipleship. By means of Jesus' teaching and healing, his disciples and we have come to expect some special things out of this Son of Man. And now in today's scripture, we understand that all these previous stories and all these previous teachings are focused on Jesus' intensely direct and personal question here. So think about that. Rhetorically, Matthew has prepared us for this question. This question. Who do you say that I am? No escape. No time for evasion. And Peter, Peter, speaks for the disciples. He speaks for the narrative of Matthew's gospel. He speaks for the community to which it was addressed, and he speaks for us when he announces that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So given what Peter had seen Jesus perform and how he had heard Jesus speak for himself, you know what? It's not all that surprising that Peter believes Jesus is the Messiah, even for Peter, even for Peter. Given the brief explanation about the location that Jesus has chosen, Peter's response shouldn't be surprising either. Near Caesarea Philippi, the adjective living, son of the living God, strongly contrasts to the empty paganism associated with the region. The true God, the true God according to Peter's testimony, is not like the pagan gods. The true God is not like John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or the prophets. The true God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, is not dead. He's not dead. He's alive. He's living. So given the unreliability of the word on the street, contrasted with the eternal reliability of God's word, given the role of Jesus in our own lives today, given all of this, the subtext of today's scripture isn't all that complex, is it? I really didn't have to dig into the commentaries or the exegesis, and and we shouldn't either. Because at this moment in Jesus' ministry, the climax of his ministry, the world's greatest teacher has one question for us. The essential question. Who do we say Jesus is? What will be our answer to that essential question today, tomorrow, forever? Who do we say Jesus is? Let's pray. God, our Father, in a world filled with uncertainties, distractions, and doubts, we find solace in the unchanging truth of your Son's divinity and his redemptive work on the cross. We pray today and every day for the strength to stand firm in this truth. May we always recognize Jesus as the source of our hope, our salvation, and our purpose. And may our lives be built upon the solid rock of Christ's limitless grace and sacrificial love. As we engage with the challenges of this world, and they are many, God, strengthen us to overcome the word on the street, to bring light to the darkness, and to be instruments of your peace and reconciliation. We thank you. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. 
the foundation of our faith and the cornerstone of our salvation. May our lives constantly proclaim his name, we pray. Amen? Amen.